Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Thursday, August 19th, 2010. Coming off the heels of a barn burner from yesterday. Got to do some catching up now. Everything makes the cut today. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I'm your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Yeah, you'll notice that uh, when it comes to complex issues, one of the things that uh, I work from as far as the assumptions is, is that the Bible in many ways doesn't say when this happens, then you do this. You have to understand uh, in particular contexts what does God's word mean, especially I'm talking about love for God and love for neighbor in this sense. And you have to play that out consistently in light of what's sinful and what's not sinful, what's principled and what's unprincipled. And when it comes to, now you'll understand I'm talking sanctification here, when it comes to the scriptures and it's showing us what a good work is, what's a good work, we're given a compass. And so you have to look at the compass and learn how to read the compass and and then make decisions uh, that are principled in that sense. Why am I talking about that at the moment? Well, because there's a lot of, well, we talked about this yesterday regarding the Ground Zero Mosque thing. There's a lot of unprincipled things happening right now, and it's making me crazy. But uh, not only that, I think it's dangerous because when you flip things, it's, it, we're, we're, you know, my, my concern is that we're going to be creating the sword that people are going to be using to hack off our religious liberties and cut us off from that in the future. So we always have to be careful that if we're going to argue principally, we need to be consistent with those principles, even if the person that is agreeing with us or that agrees with the principles is somebody that may be politically that we don't agree with. Why am I on the sub- subject? Yeah, I feel like I'm still talking about yesterday's edition. Yeah, maybe it's an aftershock. I, I don't know. Today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Let's just talk about this. Let's just skip the monologue. Let's just go. <laughs> Yesterday, the entire program was monologue. It's uh, one topic. Anyway, um, t- today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, there's a few things I want to talk about. <laughs> Surprise. One of them is the mosque. What I want to do is I want to uh, read for you a story uh, from the Telegraph in the U.K., 
And the nice thing about reading this story from the Telegraph in the U- in the UK on the Ground Zero Mosque row, as they call it, um, is that um, the uh, the pol- is that the the Telegraph doesn't exactly have a, a political skin in the game, so to speak. And so, I mean, the American politics are different than British politics. And we thank God for the, uh, the distance uh, with, that the Atlantic presents at this point because it allows uh, the, the folks in the U.K. to take a different position. And, and I like this article because it, it, it discusses it from the multiple complex angles and talks about the, what's principled and what's kind of out of control in this thing. And I like the way they cover it. So I think it would be educational for us all to hear um, this article from the UK, from the United Kingdom, and and how they're what they're outside of this uh, the United States view of uh, what's happening. Uh, that being the case, also we've got uh, bad news from the UK. The Oxford University lecturer uh, who uh, has this uh, Christian discrimination claim against Oxford University after she became a Christian, uh, she was you know pretty much a, we call it a constructive discharge. Uh, Things didn't go well for her. She was made redundant and then eventually lost her job and uh, experienced um, cold shoulders and discrimination. At least that's her claim. And, uh, you know, by her co-workers and ultimately lost her job. Well, she's lost her uh, discrimination suit against Oxford University. We'll talk about that today. Um, let's see here. Uh, I want to get to, we didn't get to this yesterday, Scott McKnight, uh, interview with Brian McLaren, part two. Want to continue that uh, interview with Brian McLaren regarding being a heretic. And then our sermon review today is uh, is the one we didn't get to yesterday, entitled Building a Great Life by Scott Turner of Summit Church in Irvine, California. So lots on deck today. Uh, make yourself comfortable. Let's, uh, let's just dive right into it. Um, from the Telegraph in the UK, Oxford University lecturer loses... Christian Discrimination Claim by Martin Beckford, Religious Affairs Correspondent for The Telegraph in the UK. All right, here's the uh, here's the story. Um, uh, a lecturer at Oxford University Center for Jewish Studies was not discriminated against after she converted to Christianity. An employment judge has uh, ruled. Dr. Tail Argoff's claim that her career suffered as and she was made redundant after she and her husband joined the Church of England, was rejected by an employment tribunal. It found that she had no proof that she had been treated badly by colleagues at the prestigious Oxford uh, Center for Hebrew and Jewish Studies because of her faith, and that the man who dismissed her did not even know that she was a Christian. Uh, The tribunal did, uh, did find that Dr. Argoff had been unfairly dismissed because of failings in the internal appeal process, but denied her compensation. So she had been unfairly dismissed. It wasn't based on Christian discrimination, uh, but we're not going to give her any money. In his judgment, employment judge Robin Lewis said, we are unable to find that any person named in this case knew about the claimant's conversion or that of her husband at the time when that person is alleged to have been discriminated. The claimant's evidence consisted of generalized assumptions and no more, and we found her to be an unreliable witness. <laughs> Dr. Argov and her husband, Aran, were both Israeli Jews who found work in Britain academia. In 2000, she took up the full-time post of lecture, of lector of modern Hebrew at the center, which is independently run by, uh, but whose students are part of the traditional Oxford College system. 
By 2008, she and her husband had become baptized into the Church of England, and she told Reading Employment Tribunal that from then on, colleagues began looking at her strangely. Claiming unfair dismissal and discrimination on the grounds of religion, she told the tribunal last month that she was overlooked for promotion, stripped of her privileges, and cold-shouldered at social gatherings because of their conversion. She said uh, staff wanted to vet her lectures and make sure that as a Christian, she would not uh, criticize Israel, and eventually she claimed that she was made redundant in an early 2009. Despite offering to take on new roles, she was dismissed. However, Dr. David Ariel, of the, uh, the president of the center, insisted he was not even aware that Dr. Argoff's faith until she began her grievances claim and added that about half of uh, his staff were not Jewish. He said that the Israeli academic was one of many staff members who were let go to rescue the center from its dire financial straits, and her position was untenable as she was being paid a full-time salary for six hours of teaching a week. He admitted it, it was a genuine error, that he did not offer her the right of appeal, but said that this was because he was not familiar with the British employment law he had been uh, head of a college in America for the previous 25 years. In his judgment, Judge Lewis said Dr. Argov had been unfairly dismissed as the center had not told her about her right of appeal, allowed unreasonable delay in the appeal process, and not conducted it with appropriate or fair rigor. However, he added that even if the appeal process had been fair, the chances of Dr. Argov remaining in her post were zero because she was not prepared uh, to uh, uh, be paid by course uh, by her course taught the tribunal ruled that Dr. Ariel could not have discriminated against Dr. Argoff in, his, in dismissing her as he did not know that she was a Christian and that she had no proof that others in the center knew about her conversion. Her allegage, allegations amounted to, quote, undocumented conversations, minor computer failings, and matters of social perception. Dr. Argoff said in a statement after the case, although I am disappointed, I am not disheartened. Despite the tribunal's decision to extinguish my entitlement for compensatory award, I shall seek to appeal and shall continue to fight until this inequitable decision is made good. So there you have it. Uh, apparently, uh, the judge has ruled that there was no discrimination that took place. Although, you know, here's the deal at this point. Um, I, I got to say, it, it just, the, the facts don't line up. Either Dr. Argoff is not telling the truth or um, uh, the, uh, the, the, the other folks that she worked with are not telling the truth. Yeah, something, some, somebody be lying. That's how I see it. Hmm. Sad, sad, sad. Our prayers go out to Dr. Argoff, and we pray that she is gainfully employed in the future in uh, in her uh, area of expertise, and that would be uh, modern-day Hebrew. Okay, From also from the Telegraph in the UK, as promised at the uh, opening of the program, uh, I want to read to you uh, how, the, uh, United, uh, how the press in the United Kingdom is uh, covering the uh, the battle over the mosque at Ground Zero. And again, this provides us a, a, a somewhat more objective, not completely, but somewhat more objective view of the debate that's going on. And this was by Toby Hard, uh, Harnden of the uh, Telegraph in the United Kingdom. The uh, headline reads, The battle over the mosque at Ground Zero. President Obama has managed only to inflame the row engulfing America over plans to erect a mosque close to the scene of the 9/11 terrorist attacks. So uh, let's uh, let's read this uh, article here. Um, August tends to be an inauspicious month 
for elevated debate in American politics. Last year, everyone was bickering about whether health care reform would usher in death panels that could dispatch granny to her grave. <laughs> Ironically, those death panels have actually come into being and uh, and care is being rationed and certain drugs are being rationed just by the um, these panels. Just want to let you know that did come to pass. Um, now, as Europe is uh, uh, now as Europe holidays, the uh, United States is in a frenzy about the building of a mosque at Ground Zero. Principal side of the 9-11 terrorist attack polls indicate that two thirds of the country opposes the establishment of a Muslim holy site at the spot where Islamists killed uh, 2,752 people that day in 2001. Even before President Barack Obama waded into the controversy at the uh, at the weekend, the issue had degenerated into a parody of one of those cable talk shows where two polemicists on either side of an issue shout at each other for 15 minutes, uh, reinforcing lots of prejudices but changing no minds. Now, that's that's... A, a Brit's take on what's happening here. Yeah. <laughs> Even before President Barack Obama waded into the controversy, the issue had degenerated into a parody of one of those cable talk shows where two polemicists on either side of any issue shouted each other for 15 minutes, reinforcing lots of prejudices but changing no minds. I, that's, mm-hmm. What is being proposed, in fact, is not a mosque, but an Islamic community center. It is, moreover, not a ground at ground zero, but two blocks away. That would put it a little under a quarter of a mile from ground zero itself. There is, incidentally, already a mosque just a third of a mile away. That's right, two blocks north of uh, this uh, thing. I pointed that out yesterday. Opponents of the Cordoba House Cultural Center like to conjure up the image of minarets rising from the ashes of the World Trade Center's Twin Towers. But in reality, the proposal is for a 15-story building with a mosque inside it, uh, with with a mosque inside it, along with an auditorium, swimming pool, and other facilities. Among its neighbors will be the Pussycat Lounge Strip Joint, the Thunder, Thunder Lingerie featuring a peep show, and numerous pizza parlors, tanning salons, banks and bars that said the sanctimony of many supporters of the project has been breathtaking uh, new york's uh, mayor michael bloomberg has been among the most prominent figures to suggest that the protesters are guilty of bigotry and religious intolerance uh. <sighs> that's right it's kind of the bill press thing the, the only reason why anyone would oppose this is because they are try they hate islam yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah, that's a great argument. It's not even an argument. Um, let's see here. Uh, certainly there are prejudiced voices opposing the plan, you know, granted, uh, which was given the go-ahead by a 9-0 to zero vote of New York's Landmark Preservation Commission a fortnight ago. Yeah, that's, uh, by the way, fortnight is not a um, term you'll ever really read in a, an American newspaper. Just want to let you know that, uh, Mr. Harnden. Hamas has, predictably, spoken out in favor of the mosque. Does that mean that all those who support the scheme favor suicide bombing? Yeah, no. Uh, Mr. Obama's uh, intervention was a ha- it was as ham-fisted as it was harmful to the prospects of common sense and goodwill prevailing. 
It is always impressive to witness a politician take a principled stand in the face of public opinion and to damn the consequences. And that is what it seemed Mr. Obama had done at Friday night's traditional White House dinner to mark the breaking of the fast during the Islamic holy month of Ramadan. Quote, as a citizen and as president, I believe that Muslims have the same right to practice their religion as anyone else in this country, he said. That includes the right to build a place of worship and a community center on private property in lower Manhattan in accordance with local laws and ordinances. By the way, I pointed this out on the program yesterday. What Obama said was principled. And conservatives who claim to be... um, defenders of the Constitution against uh, bleeding-heart liberal socialists who are trying to, uh, you know, get rid of the Constitution should have recognized this for what it was, a principled stand. And, well, anyway, that was yesterday's program. (laughs) The man who was elected largely on the basis of his awe-inspiring skill with the spoken word can surely have been in no doubt about how his utterances in a prepared speech would be interpreted. Cutting to the chase as usual, the New York tabloids called it as they saw it. Allah, right by me, proclaimed the New York Post, while the New York uh, Daily News went from Prez build the mosque. Um, But wait, the very next day, Mr. Obama was backtracking, stating that he was only defending the legal rights of the Cordoba project. I was not commenting, and I will not comment on the wisdom of making the decision to put a moss there, I, I was commenting very specifically on the right of people, uh, the, the right that people have, which dates back to our founding. <sighs> yeah, so even the president was backtracking from his principled position. Does anybody have the guts to stand for the principled position here and not backtrack off of it? And uh, so Mr. Obama had merely been playing the constitutional law professor, lecturing the nature, uh, the nation about religious freedom. And what did he think about whether the mosque should be built in that particular spot? Well, having given a speech that was interpreted by friend, foe and undecided alike as being in favor, he was now insisting that he had not he had taken no stance, taken no stance at all. Uh, uh, So Democrats working Uh, frantically to maintain their party's majorities in the November midterm elections are understandably tearing their hair out. Now, this is written by a non-American. This is written by a British news agency. I I like it because it's kind of covering all sides of the issue. So, and by the way, I told you, the mosque is not the issue. The the people who are demagoguing this thing... (laughs) They have a political agenda. Yeah, and this kind of does a nice job of fleshing some of that out. So Democrats working frantically to maintain their party's majorities in November in the November midterm elections are understandably tearing their hair out. And initially, the White House had said it was staying out of what was a, quote, local matter, a sensible position to take when Republicans such as Sarah Palin were trying to stoke it for personal political gain. Mm hmm. Then Mr. Obama weighed in, apparently on the unpopular side of the debate, a problem for centrist Democrats seeking to win seats in conservative districts. Next, he claimed not to have taken a side at all, thus losing credit from those who admired what they thought was a principled stance. 
What was most damaging, however, was that Mr. Obama was not addressing the nub of the issue at all. He was, in fact, doing what Mayor Bloomberg has done, branding all opponents of the proposed center as un-American. Mm-hmm. Bizarrely, he has also described the project as a mosque a gra- at ground zero, playing into the dumbed-down caricature of what was being proposed. Few opponents of the center have said that those who want to build it have no right to do so. What they have been saying is that they should not exercise that right because it would be insensitive to New Yorkers and to relatives of the 9-11 victims to do so. They cite in their support Pope John Paul II's decision in 1993 to order Carmelite nuns to leave the convent that they had founded in the early 1980s near the Auschwitz camp. Many Jews saw it as an affront to their sensibilities. The victims of 9-11 were not all Christians. Some 60 Muslims died that day, uh, nor were they all Americans. They came from more than 90 nations and were of many faiths. Uh, But there's no denying that the attacks were carried out in the name of Islam, albeit a perverted version of it. Given that fact, it's curious that Imam Faisal Abdul Rauf Uh, The man behind the Cordoba project should want to build a center so close to ground zero. It's even more remarkable that he should insist on proceeding with it despite the uh, furor that has developed. If a Japanese-American had proposed building a Japanese cultural center 400 yards from Pearl Harbor in 1950, he probably would have faced some opposition. He could genuinely have seen his center as a bridge towards cultural understanding, but the outcry surely would have persuaded him that the opposite would be the case. Isn't it funny that the the Brits are making a better case than the Americans? Thus, there is justifiable suspicion about the moti- the motives of Raouf, an apparently moderate Muslim who's written books such as What's Right with Islam, What's Right with America, and promoted the idea of modern Islamic faith uh, that is not at odds with Western society. He's kind of a Rick Warren type, if you would. Um, the, the, what's I see? I think the the guys who own the property there at uh, on Park Place it's about money <clears throat> anyway yeah they they want to make money on the project they're losing money right now anyway uh, he has uh, stated that the that quote united states policies were an accessory to the crime that happened because quote we have been an accessory to a lot of in- innocent lives dying in the world and the most direct sense osama bin laden is made in the usa Even more pertinently, he has uh, failed to take up an offer from Governor David Patterson uh, of New York, a Democrat, to provide city land further away from ground zero so the center could be built there. In making his proposal, Patterson made it clear he did not oppose Raouf's right to build a center where he wanted. Such a compromise would uh, seem to be an ideal way out of the mess this issue has become. But with Mr. Obama's unhelpful intervention, the battle lines are more firmly drawn than ever. Now it's sunk to the lowest common denominator of redneck versus terrorist, Muslim versus Christian, Obama versus Palin. There is every indication that this could stretch well beyond the summer silly season and become a national election issue in November. A a depressing prospect indeed. Yeah, I you, uh, I'm completely with you, Toby. Completely with you. I think this whole thing. I mean, take a principled stand and stick to the principles. Focus on the principles. Stick to the principles, and um, and the rest of it kind of works itself out. But I'm convinced that 
political demagogues are demagoguing and exploiting this issue in order to move public opinion along a line that um, is more conducive with their political agendas. I think that's what's really coming, That what this is all about. And that's why at this point, this, uh, and when you understand the facts, I mean, it's going to be pretty much, um, um, it's pretty much going to be a, uh, uh, yeah, it's going to be a miracle if they get this thing built. Uh, yeah, it's depressing. Yeah, depressing prospect indeed. Yeah, I hate what's happened on the, regarding this issue, and I hate the fact that people who who supposedly are men and women who are defenders of the Constitution, uh, that the principled position has been chucked out the window in favor of subjective opinions at this point. So, yeah, that's why I've picked a principled position, and I'm sticking to my guns on it. And, of course, I could be wrong. But if I'm wrong, make your case and use principle to prove it. All right, we're up on our uh, first break. Uh, if you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, pirate Christian. We'll, we'll be right back. ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> You're listening to the Emergence Sports Network here on Pirate Christian Radio. You've tuned in just in time to catch today's Emergence Ball match between the Pomo Bombers and the Majestic Mystics. Today's match is proudly brought to you by Rex Quando's Bible Pants. There's the buzzer, and they're off. McLaren dribbles a pigskin down to first base, takes out his putter, and... Whoa! Jones checks McLaren against the boards, and then passes to Padgett in left field. But wait, Bulls Weber is charging from the 10-yard line, and she slam dunks from the foul line. That's a birdie. The crowd is going wild. When was the last time you saw something like that? I don't think I've ever seen anything like this. Okay, play is resuming. There's Rollins. He serves to Bell. Bell snatches the snitch. And then Hail Mary passes to McLaren. McLaren is in the end zone. Oh, and he slaps it back to third base. Tickle grabs her wicket and then punts one out into center court. It looks like Jones and Padgett are double-teaming Bowles Weber. He doesn't have a shot, so she slices one off into the rough. 
McLaren is there to make the safety, but Padgett grabs McLaren's face mask and then throws down to second base. What a brilliant save that was. Jones takes out his driver, then sends one out to midfield. Tickle headbutts the ball and then sends it back to McLaren. He vaults over the pummel horse. Oh, and he sticks the landing! Unfortunately, the degree of difficulty wasn't that high, but McLaren racked up seven brownie points. Tickle sets up for the kickoff. But wait, Jones is trying to steal third base. Tickle slap shots the ball back to Bulls Weber, but Jones is safe! He's safe! That means it's going to be third down with 44 meters to the pin. Looks like this match is going to go into sudden death. Dr. Rod Rosenblatt discussing the church's need for world-class scholarship and the unique way in which the British academic model offered at the Wittenberg Institute can help provide you with a top-level postgraduate theological degree. Christians are dependent on good scholarship in a way that sometimes we forget. Think of Tyndall House in England. Some of those evangelicals were so ruled away from the big table conversation in the Church of England that they had to develop graduate training under particular guys who had a high view of Christ and a high view of Scripture. Over the years, they did marvelous stuff with individual young scholars who came there to be trained. So what's the difference between the European model and the American model? The European is used to saying things like, I studied under so-and-so, and the American, uh, that's pretty foreign. And I'm not here talking about the diploma mills. I'm talking about somebody who is tutored, something like Oxford or at Cambridge, and uh, walked through graduate work. If you would like more information about the Wittenberg Institute's British-styled research master's degree, then visit them on the web at wittenberginstitute.org forward slash PCR or call them at area code 425-533-8659. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Morning. 
the Ground Zero mosque thing. The goal is not the mosque. Have I said that? Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to partner with us with, you can do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, moving along with the program here, we gotta, we got to continue with uh, Scott McKnight's interview with uh, Brian McLaren. When the Yeah, it's an obligation that whenever we talk about Brian McLaren, we got to play his song. Moving along here. Now, um, I apologize that there's uh, two days between part one and part two of this. Uh, Brian McLaren, in uh, part one of his interview with Scott McKnight, uh, was basically making the claim that the uh, the meta narrative that uh, we've that the Christianity has had the entire time of its history, well, it's complicit in crimes against humanity, apparently. And um, yeah, I I'll stand by my guns. When you compare what Brian McLaren says in the name of God to the Word of God, the man is a heretic. He is dangerous. And um, let's continue so that you can. You know, I'll back it up just maybe about thirty seconds so we can keep our context as we listen to Brian McLaren. And of course, I'll chime in accordingly. Let's continue. Um, you know, in the Christian tradition you either can read the Christian tradition and try to find the one line that you think is legitimate and everything off of that line is illegitimate. Uh, no, 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 no. The, the one line you think is legitimate, that's absolutely a, a mischaracterization. No, what does the Scripture say and teach and confess? And when you look at what the Christian church has believed and confessed from the beginning— and that from its earliest inception, even from the apostolic era, heretics were branded as heretics. Uh, we read, uh, I was reading Irenaeus, he was talking about uh, the Apostle John. The Apostle John, uh, church tradition, church history tells us, and Irenaeus confirms uh, a lot of this, is that the Apostle John later in his life became the bishop of Ephesus. You remember the Apostle Paul I mean, he's the one who planted the churches in the city of Ephesus, and uh, modern day Ephesus, by the way, is about a year, is about a mile away from the uh, uh, from the Mediterranean Sea, or it's a, it's a mile away from the ocean. Back then, it was actually a, a port town. I mean, that that shows you how over the past couple of thousand years, uh, the 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 Earth's geography has changed. It's now uh, it's now inland about a mile. 
But anyway, I, I digress. The Apostle Paul planted the churches there in Ephesus, preached the gospel day after day after day after day uh, in the marketplace in the Hall of Tyrannus, and the churches were thriving churches. And later we find that the Apostle Paul, not Paul, the Apostle John, uh, becomes like the bishop of Ephesus. He's you know the head honcho over the churches in that particular region of Asia Minor. And... um. We read from the church fathers of of a particular incident that occurred. That incident, by the way, uh, took place at the public bathhouse in Ephesus. I mean, they didn't have indoor plumbing, and uh, you know, back two thousand years ago. And so, if you wanted to go and kind of deodorize yourself um, to you know clean the body up a little bit, get rid of some of the stench and the muck and the yeah, you would. They had public places where you can go and bathe. Well, the Apostle John, upon entering the public bathhouse in Ephesus, noticed that a particular man by the name of Serinthus happened to be in the um, in the bathhouse. Serinthus, in case you're not familiar with him, uh, was a Gnostic. He taught this uh, Gnostic heresy that Jesus really wasn't physically there. He didn't leave any footprints. I mean, he taught the demiurge, the aeons, and all that bizarre Gnostic craziness about Christ. Now, the, you'll notice that the if you when you read the story, if you, you'll find it in several... Eusebius writes about it, or Irenaeus writes about it. I think Ignatius might even have mentioned Serenthus as well. I'm doing this from memory, so I could be wrong. You fact-checkers out there. Anyway, upon entering... You'll notice, though, that uh, what the Apostle John didn't do is that when he saw Serinthus in there, he says, oh, yeah, we we got to embrace a generous orthodoxy. Yeah, what we need to do is, you know, we need to extend the right hand of fellowship to Serinthus because his interpretation of, of Jesus and his life is every bit as valid as my interpretation, and I wouldn't want to impugn upon the plurality of truth. No, that's not what happened at all. The Apostle John, and seeing that Serinthus was in this bathhouse, we learn from church tradition from, uh, from <laughs> basically tells us that um, the Apostle John left in a huff and uh, so much so that uh, the, 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 the way the story gets told, he ended up walking, kind of storming out of the bathhouse um, half naked. And it, his uh, valet was trying to cover him up, you know, because he wasn't appropriate for um, public viewing. He wasn't dressed enough as he stormed out of the bathhouse. And basically, I'm paraphrasing here, the Apostle John, eyewitness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the, the apostle whom Jesus loved, quoted as saying, I will not bathe with heretics lest the roof cave in. That's how incensed he was just being in the presence of a man who would dare to teach a doctrine other than the doctrines taught by the apostles. But, but him, an eyewitness. Okay? That's how the church has dealt with heretics. And the Apostle John, many uh, make the case that uh, his gospel is a very anti-Gnostic gospel. It's written against heretics. And if you read, uh, is it Third John? Uh, the one to this, uh, hang on a second here. I, I need to pull up my uh, computerized Bible. Yeah, li- <clears throat> Back then, um, back in the uh, first century, uh, you know, they didn't, uh, they, there were no grand edifices called churches at that point people met in houses and uh let me see is it third john uh three john hang on a second here doing a little bit of computerized um 
Oh, it might be Second John. Hang on. Oh, let me. I want, I want to find this and see if it. Uh, yeah, here it is. <laughs> Have you all ever taken the time to uh, spend a couple of minutes uh, reading the thirteen verses of Second John? Yeah, listen to this. Uh, to the elder, to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. So he's writing to the elect lady, okay? And this is in reference to the church that meets at her home, okay? So you, you got to understand that's the context here. They had home churches back then because they didn't have the buildings that we had. And the Christians, for the most part, were on the run anyway, uh, highly persecuted. So he says, grace, mercy, and peace uh, will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father, Son, in love, in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. And this is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world... Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, Gnostics, such a one is the deceiver and is the Antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. And if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your home. Now, in this particular case, it's talking about the church. So don't receive him into your church or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Uh huh. That's the Apostle John. So again, I, I just I one of my favorite questions here at Fighting for the Faith is who are you going to believe? Are you going to believe the Apostle John? I witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who was chosen by Jesus Christ Himself to be an apostle, to be a disciple, to traipse around the Judean countryside with him for three years. The Apostle John, whom Jesus Himself loved and trusted so much personally, personally charged John to take care of his mother, Mary, after his death, resurrection, and ascension. Church history tells us, by the way, that Mary went with John to Ephesus, and she was there. That's probably most likely uh, where she died. So um, who are you going to believe? John, who said many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus in the flesh, such a one is a deceiver and the Antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. And if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, don't let him into your church or give him any greeting. Are you going to believe John or are you going to believe 
Brian McLaren. Let me back this up. Here we go. Here's Brian McLaren again, waxing eloquent. I'm happy for people to, to take your approach. I hope people can, you know, make room for me to take my approach. One other thing I'll just say on that is that, um, you know, in the Christian tradition, you either can read the Christian tradition and try to find the one line that you think is legitimate and everything off of that line is illegitimate. Or else you can look at the Christian tradition and say, we have this whole range of different ways of seeing things. You know, the Gnostic range. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. And that range through history gives us a lot of freedom. And I think what I'm advocating does go all the way back through church history to the very beginning. Uh, No, it doesn't. You can't trace uh, Brian McLaren's teaching all the way through Christian history. You can't at all. The creed that he confesses, the, 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 the meta narrative that he provides, not one single church father taught it. In fact, if you believe McLaren, really, you have to come to the conclusion that the entire church has been steeped in heresy since its beginning until Brian McLaren has showed up on the scene and he and Doug Paget and Tony Jones have freed the Christian church from error. That's what you have to believe because his ideas are so unique and so contrary to what the church has believed, taught, and confessed from its beginning, so contrary a reading that, that that's uh, clearly uh, denied by Scripture itself and by Jesus himself. I mean, you basically have to come to the conclusion the apostles completely biffed it. Um, I think it's the approach taken more by St. Patrick than by uh, Constantine. Uh, by the way, um, St. Patrick... Um, I just want to point this out. He was not an apostle, although I have deep, deep respect for St. Patrick and his Johannine uh, theology. Uh, Constantine, not a church father, politician. I think it's the approach taken in the last 100 years by advocates of the social gospel, by advocates, uh, advocates of the social gospel, Rauschenbusch, men who deny that Christ rose again bodily from the grave. Modernist liberals. It's of liberation theology by people. Liberation theology. Remember the black liberation theologian we played? He, he, he Right here in this section of the interview, Brian McLaren is aligning himself with modernist liberals who deny miracle Christ's bodily resurrection from the dead and are advocates of the social gospel, Roush and Bush and the gang. Liberation theologians, black liberation theologians. Let me back this up so you can hear him say it in context without me interrupting him. And I think what I'm advocating does go all the way back through church history to the very beginning. Um, I think it's the approach taken more by St. Patrick than by uh, Constantine. I think it's more the approach taken by St. Francis than by uh, both the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church in its colonial era and in its crusading and and, uh, violent era. I think it's the approach taken by the Anabaptists uh, and and the the Radical Reformation. I think it's the approach taken in the last 100 years by advocates of the social gospel, by advocates of liberation theology, by people who are concerned about things like black theology, Latino theology, uh, feminist, eco-theology, and so on. That is just one big laundry list of radical, liberal, 
historic gospel denying miracle denying these are not gospels this is not theology this isn't christianity these are men who are trying to overthrow the christian faith and completely radically alter it and meld it to marxist ideas hegelian and philosophical ideas and racial and radical uh, well at least he's honest so what I would hope is that that uh, I, I, I'm not I'm not interested in condemning anybody. I am interested in saying some of us need to explore some other alternatives. Um, but generous orthodoxy is not the Greco-Roman narrative. As I as I see it, there is nothing I wrote in generous orthodoxy and nothing I wrote in a new kind of Christianity that aren't in harmony. I don't think there's a shred of tension between them. You, I don't now that's a confession there because uh, I tell you, I read Generous Orthodoxy and knew immediately that it was a heretic. You can read the writing on the wall. And when I was pointing this out on my blogs at the time, people were basically saying I was overstating my point. Now he's publicly said that everything in Generous Orthodoxy fits perfectly with his, quote, new kind of Christianity, as if you can create such a thing. By the way, the Christianity that we have, the apostles did not create their doctrine. They didn't create their meta narrative. It was all given to them by Christ. The apostolic doctrine is the doctrine preached and taught by Christ. Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them all that I have commanded you. The apostles don't have their own doctrine. The doctrine they have and the meta narrative that went along with it was given to them by Christ. The apostolic doctrine is Christ's doctrine. Paul even himself said that he didn't come up with his own his own gospel, but that he was given to it directly by Jesus Christ himself. And he took his gospel and went to Jerusalem and laid it before the other apostles, the guys who spent three years with Jesus. And he laid it out before them and they didn't add anything to it. Yep, that's the gospel, they said. Hmm. I don't think you'll find anything in generous orthodoxy that supports that kind of Greco-Roman narrative. I, I think it was a mistake to try to fit the good news of Jesus Christ that arises from the story of the Jewish people. I think it's a mistake to only fit that within the categories of Greek philosophy and Roman politics. Again, if you would read the Church Fathers, the Church Fathers, oh, like Irenaeus and Tertullian, and Augustine, they wrote vehemently against Aristotelianism and Platonism. There was a concerted effort on the part of the early church to fight off those people who were trying to syncretize Christianity with Greco-Roman philosophy. What Brian McLaren is saying here is not true. This is a historically inaccurate rewrite of history that is not telling you the truth in order to overthrow what Christianity has taught from its beginning. Labeling it incorrectly as a Greco-Roman narrative that was basically put together by missionally mixing Christianity with Greco-Roman philosophy, that's a lie. Read the Church Fathers. 
they write vehemently against Aristotelianism, Platonism, uh, Epicureanism, Stoic philosophy. You name the philosophy of the day, and they were writing against those who were trying to syncretize Christianity with those philosophies. McLaren's not telling you the truth. Greek philosophy and Roman politics. I think it was a missiological necessity for the early Christians. As yeah, listen to what he's saying here. He's basically saying the way we came up with this, uh, this Greco-Roman narrative, this Greco-Roman meta-narrative, you know, that man sinned, uh, disobeyed God, fell into sin, and needs to be saved by Christ and regenerated and raised from the dead, and that God's going to punish people. He said that He's he's making the claim that that all came about as a missiological necessity of the of the early uh, Christian era. They encounter Greek culture to translate the message of Jesus Christ into the terms of the Greek culture that they went to. I think it was understandable that they wanted to be acceptable to the Roman culture that had so much power. The Christians were not trying to be acceptable to the Romans who had power. Read the church fathers. Many of them gladly took the mantle of martyr upon themselves. They were not interested in negotiating with the Greeks and the Romans. I mean, this is just breathtakingly deceptive and evil. How he could say this with a straight face, I have no idea. It, it's ironic because some of my conservative uh, brethren and sister and uh, say that I'm guilty. I, I'm sorry. You have no brothers and sisters who are Christians. You are a heretic. You are outside of the Christian faith. You are outside of the body of Christ. You have no brothers and sisters within Christianity. None. It, it's ironic because some of my conservative uh, brethren and sister and uh, say that I'm guilty of syncretism. Uh, the irony is I think what I'm more concerned about is that we've had a massive syncretism or mixing in the past. Mm -hmm. uh, no, we haven't. Study the church fathers and you realize that there's no way you can claim that with any tenability at all. Of the good news of Jesus Christ, a Jewish story. And okay, now listen to what, listen carefully. He's going to lay out what the, apparently the gospel is. Here we go. It's a Jewish story. Not the story of the empire, but the story of the people being dominated by the empire. I'm worried that that story got co-opted and be, has become very often a tool of people with a lot of money, a lot of power, a lot of weapons, and something in the message of Jesus, I think it's corrupted. One last thing I'll say about that. But we're running out of time. Uh, well, just the irony is that when people do inquisitions about, are you Orthodox Calvinist, Orthodox this, Orthodox this, the irony is... They want to know your opinion on predestination, your opinion on this, this hell is a big one. Nobody ever asked them if they were racists. And the irony is in the, in the 20th century, in which you and I sort of came of age, we had the fundamentalist modernist controversy. And he's clearly in the side of the modernists, which is bizarre since he's supposedly postmodern. And the people on the right side of that, from our background, were the people on the wrong side of most of the big social issues of the time. It's tragic. It's true. I don't grant that at all. I, there were plenty of churches. My stepdad, by the way, um, he marched with um, Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, there were many churches, pastors, Christians, 
who were on the right side of the civil rights issue and did so on religious grounds. The belief that in the end, all will be saved. Okay, this is question number three, and uh, it's gonna, he's going to ask him a question about universalism, but we're out of time for this segment. So we'll have to do part three of this and get to the question about Brian McLaren answering if everybody's going to be saved. Universalism is the question. So we'll save that for uh, Monday's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Give you just something else to look forward to because I just know you love hearing about Brian McLaren and hearing his heresies. Anyway, if you would like to uh, email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Think Christianity, we need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. Of this sissy, frenzy, cunning, photo-written music, you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Are you tired of giving gifts that are as boring as elevator music? I mean, how many ties and dust-collecting paperweights does a person need? Well, Pirate Christian Radio has the perfect solution to boring gifts. The answer is Cloud9 Living. Cloud9 Living offers more than 1,600 unique and memorable experience gifts in 42 cities nationwide. 
Gifts such as hot air balloon rides, dinner cruises, stock car racing, skydiving, and combat aircraft dogfighting. Cloud9 Living has gifts for every taste and every budget. For more information on Cloud9 Living, visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cloud9. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cloud9. You'll be glad that you did. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith, Sermon Review Time. Uh, feels good to get back into a normal routine here. bad the ugly we review it all here at fighting for the faith we are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service today's sermon comes to us via the summit church irvine california the name of the sermon is building a great life apparently a that's what Christianity's all about. You, you didn't know that, did you? Yeah. Now you're sitting there going, that sounds a lot like kind of what I would get from, you know, the Joel Osteen types. Precisely. Right. And this one, rather than coming in the prosperity vein, comes to us in the um, seeker-driven, purpose-driven, abundant life strain. Uh, the sermon today is preached by Pastor Scott Turner there at the Summit Church in Irvine, California. I, I, I used to live in Irvine. I graduated from Concordia University, Irvine. All right, with that in mind, let me kill this music. Here is, uh, I, I'm going to play, I'm gonna, as we listen to this, I want you to even hear their intro to the sermon. Uh, here is um, uh, Pastor Scott Turner. Summit Church, Irvine, California, building a great life. Tally ho. Welcome to the official podcast of the Summit Church. Thank you for listening to the Summit's podcast. We want to see your life go higher. We want to see your life go higher. Wow. That's just, oh, that just is such a... Fine, I'm sure the world would love that message. We want to see your life go higher. See, that's what Jesus was all about, is making your life go higher. <clears throat> we continue. Four years ago this week, uh, the Turners uh, moved down to Irvine and uh, moved out of L.A. and uh, kind of finished an assignment with the church that we had up there and um, came down here to start this church. And here we are. 
uh, three and a half years later of meeting, and I'm excited about where we're at. I'm really excited about where we're going. I'm excited about you. I'm excited. That's why we came down here. We didn't come down here uh, to do anything other than to build people up. And this series that we're going to kind of run. We didn't come down here except for to do anything other than build people up. We, We didn't come here to preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus name to to basically preach God's law against sin and the sinners who commit those sins and call them to repent of their wickedness and wretchedness for the wrath of God is soon to be revealed and to receive the forgiveness of sins when by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for our sins. No, 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 no. We came here to build people up. At least for the first part of the summer is called uh, building a great life because that's what we want you to have. That's what I want to have. That's what I want for all of us. Turn your Oh, that is so generous. Too bad it's not biblical. Now watch carefully how he handles God's word here. This guy, I mean, this is kind of the uh, scatter gun, uh, the shotgun approach. You know, the you know, you, shotgun doesn't sh- normally shoot a you know a bullet, but it, it basically has a bunch of BBs. I mean, and so what we're getting is Bible BBs here that are going to be scattered all all over the place, and there's no context given for this stuff. Just a verse here, verse there, verse here, verse there, verse here. Verse. These are Bible BBs that you're going to, yeah, and this is the scattergun approach. And by the way, this is not how you do biblical exegesis. Your neighbor and say, you want a great life? Go ahead, just ask them. Make sure they're there. Make sure they're awake. Yeah, ask your neighbor, do you want a great life? Oh, yes. Oh, I'm sure you do. Yeah. Jesus doesn't promise you that. Okay. After that long video, make sure they're still awake. Okay. Excellent. Um, but this is for you. This series is designed for you. And so I'm excited about it. But the starting point, I believe, of building a great life, it's all about surrender. In fact, following Christ is all about surrender. But many people think it's that one moment of surrender at the cross. And of course, that's the starting point. But all of us know now that we have been walking with the Lord, it's actually a process of surrender. It's, it's learning uh, how to follow him, learning how to give things up, learning how to give control uh, to God and not take control of our own life. I don't know about you, but I've been pretty good about this is sanctification via surrender. So we Christians, we need to go and buy ourselves some white flags so that we can surrender about trying to control my own life, but ultimately I've got to surrender that to God. So today we're going to kind of look at that and, and what does that look like? But before we do, I just want to share the scripture that jumped out this week at me. Mark six twelve, talking about uh, Mark six, Mark chapter six, verse 12. If you have your Bible, flip over there and hopefully you, you have a good translation. You're going to need it. Mark chapter six, uh, verse 12. And uh, when he quotes it, I hope you see the problem immediately. Mark chapter 6, verse 12. For those of you who don't have a Bible handy, maybe you're on a treadmill or you're still trying to get your fuzzy bunny slippers on, uh, let me read to you uh, Mark chapter 6. Uh, in fact, I'll start at verse 7 because our three rules are context, context, context when it comes to biblical interpretation. Those are the three primary rules. 95 to 96% of all Bible twisting will just get cleared up immediately. Um, just instantly, uh, if you just take a look at the context, that means maybe three, four verses, maybe a paragraph ahead and a paragraph behind so that you can see the great context of this, uh, of what it is that they're saying. Cause people who engage in Bible BB shooting, 
Um, you know, ripping a verse out of context here and then taking another one out of context there and then sticking it in a straw and shooting it at you. They're not teaching you the Bible. They're ripping it out of context. So let me um, also, by the way, good good translation, mucho importante. I use the ESV, the English Standard Version, which I lovingly refer to as the English Sanctified Version. Uh, I switched to that a few years ago after using the NIV for many years. Far better translation than the NIV, by the way. Uh, but Mark chapter 6, verse 7, the, the verse in question is verse 13. So if you have your Bible, open up to Mark chapter 6, verse 7, and follow along. And here's what it says. And he, that's Jesus, called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for the journey except for a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on and uh, and not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So when they went, they went out and proclaimed that people should repent and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed and healed them. Okay. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. That's what the text says, the verse in question. Now let's uh, hear what um, what Pastor Scott here does with it. Uh, the, uh, the disciples, they went on and they were preaching. And it says that they preach with joyful urgency that life can be radically different. Now- <laughs> uh, uh, what? That is not... <laughs> no... No, no, that is not what the text says. They, they, what did you say it says again here? Um, hang on a second. Let's uh, listen in again. Uh, the uh, the disciples they went on and they were preaching. And it says that they preach with joyful urgency that life can be radically different. Yeah, I I, I know I'm. I'm I apologize for him. I, yeah, I, he apparently doesn't know any better. No, that is not what the text says. And the text does not say that they went on and preached the that life. What is it? Life could be radically better. That is a flat out lie. The text does not say that. Here we go again. Uh, the uh, the disciples they went on and they were preaching. And it says that they preach with joyful urgency that life can be radically different. And I just. I just, um, wow, wow, wow. That is just, uh, no, that is not what the text says. It, it, no, it does not say anything about them preaching that life can be radically better. What translation are you reading? Okay, so it's in verse 12. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. You see the big difference? They went out so that, let me check it in the Greek. I mean, maybe I'm missing something here. <sighs> okay, so let's see here. Kai, Alethantes, uh huh, yeah, X, yeah. Nope. I've got news for you. It says, it says in the Greek, they went out, they went out, uh, and preaching in order that people should repent. Yeah, that's what the Greek says. They went out preaching in order for there to be repentance, that people should repent. 
Doesn't say anything about life being better. So, okay, we've got an immediate problem here. What happened? What if, what would, what should you do if you are sitting through a sermon and your pastor starts pulling this kind of stuff? You need to confront him as soon as the sermon is over and say, what? Can you explain to me how you got that out of this passage? Here's what a good translation says. Why did you twist God's word? Maybe they didn't do it purposely. Maybe they did it unintentionally. If they repent, then you know you're okay. If they sit there and go, nope, this is all about that, and I don't, you got to leave. Well, then you got to leave. <laughs> oh, wow. The Bible does not say what this guy just said that it said. I, there is no reputable translation that you can point to where the Bible says such tomfoolery that they preach that you can have a better... What it has. Uh, the, uh, the disciples, they went on and they were preaching. And it says that they preach with joyful urgency that life can be radically different. Nope. Not at all. This is just a flat-out lie. You know what makes me wonder? Um, I wonder if this is what the message paraphrase says. Let's uh, track this down. I don't own a copy of the message. So at BibleGateway.com, I'm having to surf the web at this point. And let's see here, the message. And I'm looking for Mark chapter 6. Let's um, let's look this up on the Internet here. Uh, Mark chapter 6 from the message. Um, let's see here. Um, let's see. So if you're not welcome, uh, not listened to quietly withdrawal, don't make a scene, shrug your shoulders and be on your way. Then they went on the road. They preached with joyful urgency that life can be radically different. That's the problem. Yeah. That message. Yeah. If, if you're a pastor and you're using the message, stop, chuck that thing out, get it, get rid of it. it you don't need it. No, you need to learn Greek and Hebrew. Get rid of the message. Put that thing away. In fact, you may want to consider shredding it or basically disposing of it in such a way that it doesn't have the potential to infect people with false doctrine. It's not worthy to be even mentioned or brought up in church at all, ever. Get rid of it. Yeah, it's bad stuff. And uh, this shows you exactly why, because people are twisting God's word and they're looking to the message. See, it's in the Bible. It's in the message. <laughs> That's not what the text says. It doesn't say anything about life being radically different. When you read it in the Greek, it says that they went out preaching repentance. Now, I just kind of want to base this series off of that. That you know. So you're going to base the entire sermon series off of the message paraphrase of Mark chapter 6, 12. Yeah. We're not going to get very far into the sermon, I can tell you right now. If I keep going the way we're going, it's going to take me three hours to review it. Over the next few weeks, as you, as we, we come and we, we talk and we figure things out, your life can be radically different. And I don't know if you believe that or not, but that's the power of the gospel. That's what the Holy Spirit can do. That's why we, we don't come to church just to hear a nice little sermon and to take a little, little... Oh, I agree. The gospel can radically change your life. It could take you from breathing to dead. Mm-hmm. A little bit of communion and, and, and say hi to someone. We, we come to church to, to be radically changed and, and to be different. And that's what God wants to do. And that's what I want to see again. This series is designed for you. But I pray that all of us, we, we, we get that radical difference that we... Okay, I want to point something out here. This is where the sermon begins. There is no hope whatsoever for this entire sermon. We are already heading the wrong direction. The cliff is in front of us. And he already jumped off of it. Yeah, so there's no hope for the sermon, none. There's no way to rescue it. There's no way for this thing to land on, there's no way for this pastor to land on his feet. No way at all. He's already jumped off the heresy cliff. 
And he's going to base his entire three-part sermon series on that verse from the message paraphrase. I'm just waiting for the splat. Yeah. We know we need in our lives, and this, this, this life that's great, I believe defined by the Bible, is a, is a life that is built on loving God passionately. It's a life that's built on surrender. It's a life that's built on sacrifice. It's a life... Uh, I'm sorry, this is not the gospel. Uh, this, yeah, sorry, I, I need to pull you over, sir. Uh, you're breaking... The, this is all law. Mm. Life that's built on dreams and vision. It's a life that's built on what God wants for... Oh boy, you know, if I had I I if I had a buck for every time I heard a, a secret driven guy talking about dreams and visions, I'd be very wealthy. Of course, it's a life of prayer, it's a life of fasting, it's a it's a life of uh, of his favor and his blessing. So we're going to look at all these things and um you know, the bottom line is life is really short. The Bible uses all kinds of metaphors for for life that we live down here. You know, uh, I turned I'll turn 41 this summer and just Life is honestly, man, it's just, it's flown by. Hannah turned 12 a couple weeks ago and she was at her 12, uh, her, 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 excuse me, her grade six. Um, they call it a promotion, graduation. And, uh, they had this party at the lagoon and there she was and she just ran by with a bunch of friends and the parents were invited there, even though the parents, you know, the kids stayed away from the parents and the parents kind of kept to their own. But just watching her run by with all her friends, I'm like, my gosh, she's a little woman. You know, time, time to buy the shotgun that I've been <laughs> contemplating buying. But it was just such a, a moment of just seeing her and watching her and going, my goodness, she's 12 years old now. And at her pr uh, promotion ceremony, they had us all send in some pictures. And Mary sent in the, my favorite picture of Hannah. It's when she was about two. And they put that up on the screen and my heart just broke. And then I look at her up on the stage getting ready to get her diploma. And she was a, uh, she, she was in the top 1% of her class and got a gold medal thing and a letter from Barack Obama and all that. She did really good. I, she didn't get that from me. Trust me. Um, I've never had straight A's in my life, but, uh, she was up there and I just, I'm looking at the pitch that I'm looking at her and my heart's just breaking. And the Bible talks about life and all the metaphors it uses. It says our life is like a breath. It's like a vapor. One, uh, I think in James, it says it's like a wisp of smoke. Our, our life's like a, a fleeting shadow. It's here for a minute, for a second, and then it's gone. And uh, life's short. But look at this in 1 Corinthians 6, 1. It says that we beg you. Apostle Paul was begging the church. We beg you, please don't squander one bit of this marvelous life that God has given you. Bible BB again. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. 1 Corinthians 6. What was the passage again? Hang on a second here. I need to back this up because that was a Bible BB a verse out of context. I have no idea what you're supposed to do with Bible BBs. Uh, let me play this. Again. A fleeting shadow. It's here for a minute, for a second, and then it's gone. And uh, life's short. But look at this in First Corinthians six one. It says that we beg you. Apostle Paul was begging the church. We beg you, please don't squander one bit of this marvelous life that God has given you. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Wow. Um, I, I need to add some context to this. I Hang on a second. He's probably preaching from the message because I'm just not seeing what he just said at all. 1 Corinthians 6. 
Um, hang on a second here. There's a message. Uh, yeah, I I don't even know what he's talking about. First Corinthians six. Don't hey. First Corinthians chapter six one. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he not dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will be judged by the world? And if you and if the world is to be judged by you, are you to, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? First Corinthians chapter six is about <clears throat> Christians suing other Christians. I, yeah, well, I that's what I just read. I mean, maybe I'm, maybe he's using like an alternate uh, mystical text that appears. Uh, when particular angles and light from the sun hits the pages a particular way. I, yeah, I, I don't know what he's doing here. Uh, hey, the backing it up just a second. Apostle Paul was begging the church, we beg you, please don't squander one bit of this marvelous life that God has given you. Don't squander it. Don't waste it. Yeah, that's nowhere in First Corinthians 6 at all. Yep that refuse to waste your life. The little slogan that we've had since we started the church that we need to talk about more is three little words, your life higher. And that's... Yeah, the slogan, your life higher, because that's what Jesus was all about. Your life higher. Liar. That's why, we, that's why this church exists, is to try to take people closer to God and, and elevate their life closer to Him. In Romans 6.13, it says, offer yourself completely to God. That's Surrender. Romans, we had another Bible BB there, by the way. Uh, Romans chapter 6. He said verse 13, right? Let me see here. Um, Do not present your members as sins uh, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from life to death and members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law but under grace. Yeah, the, we got so many Bible BBs running around the table here. I mean... This is this is not how you understand what God's word teaches. This is just reprehensible what you're hearing. This is ridiculous. So that you can be used for his good purposes. It all starts with surrender. I saw that Webster's Dictionary defines surrender as this, to give oneself up into the power of another. And uh, how exactly, if it's all based upon me surrendering, how do I know if I've surrendered enough? Hmm? Um, what's the sign that I've surrendered enough? Because daily I struggle against sin, and you do too. So have you surrendered enough? If it all depends upon surrender, I mean, how do you know when you've done enough surrendering? Or if you've meant it when you surrendered, did you uh, surrender sincerely enough the first time you surrendered? If it depends on your surrender? By the way, the Bible doesn't teach this. Let me say that again. To give oneself up into the power of another. To yield my life into God's loving control, not not giving up, but really more giving in, giving in to him. And we as Americans in particular... Yeah, and how do we do that again? In particular, we think this idea of surrender, it, it's definitely not popular. We think of it as a negative. We think of an army, one that's superior to a lesser army, and that, that we have to wave a white flag to God almost in humiliation because we're surrendering that way. That's not what I'm talking about. We, we, we kind of sometimes think about it like on a playground where there's a bully. 
you know, that kid, maybe that was you, that kid that was bullying everybody else and just roughing them up. And the kids are scrambling and they're securing lunch money and they're running away. And, and here comes, you know, here comes Biff and Biff's ready just to, 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 to take you down and twist your arm or, or give you a wedgie or whatever Biff did. And he's trying to get you to say uncle. He's trying to get you to surrender. And some of us think God's kind of like Biff and he's chasing us down and he's going to give us a divine wedgie. No, he's going <laughs> to twist our arm. He's trying to. A divine wedgie. Mm-hmm. Trying to do all this. Or it's like the cops chasing a criminal. Bad boys. Bad, and he's ch- they're chasing a criminal. And finally, they chase him down this alley. And there's no escape. That's what we think surrender is. That's not the biblical type of surrender. Surrender is giving God everything and saying, God, you know what's best for me. And you, uh, so it's, that's what surrender is giving God everything. And how's that working out for you? Have you given God everything? Cause I mean, if you truly have given God everything, then don't you think you wouldn't be sinning anymore? I mean, cause if you're still sinning, then well, obviously you haven't given God everything. I mean, you make it sound so easy. <laughs> I just need to give him everything. Because that's what it depends on. Good luck, because you haven't really truly surrendered until you've surrendered everything. Yeah, let me know how that's working out for you. You have my best at heart, and I'm going to put my heart and my life and everything into your hands. I'm going to surrender. And again, it's not just at the moment at the cross. That's the beginning of surrender, but it's a life long process of surrendering to him continuing to so it's a lifelong process okay so um am i expected to surrender to a particular point then i mean since it's a lifelong process of surrendering so it's a slow motion surrender now if i haven't surrendered enough by the time that i die um would do i go to heaven or hell give things give in to him and give in to his will and, and the reality is surrender has a very negative connotation, but it's not giving up. It's giving, it's giving in. Oh, yeah. Wow. That's profound. Deep uh, Bible verses, any passages that you can show me in context that teach this, please. It's telling God, you can have me. It's telling God, I've come to the end of what I can do and I'm ready to be dependent upon you. It's saying, God, I need you. God, I'm, I'm tired of trying to run my own show here. I'm, I'm ready for you to take the reins. I'm ready. This sounds so pious, and it sounds so surrendery. Um, again, I don't see this taught in Scripture at all. Hmm. Ready for you to steer my life. At the end of the day, surrender is not. So, I, I'm sorry, but I think the correct way then to describe this sermon that we're hearing um, is that in reality, this sermon really is not based upon the Bible. No, 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 no. This is actually, um, uh, this is the the gospel of Carrie Underwood. Yeah, do you, you all know what I'm talking about here. Um, what, what was her song, Jesus Take the Wheel? Um, isn't that how, uh, hang on a second here, I might be able to find this. Yeah, it, see if this is the uh, the song, This this is actually what we're talking about here. She was 
Driving last Friday on her way to Cincinnati on a snow white Christmas Eve. Going home to see her mama and her daddy with the baby in the back seat. Fifty miles to go and she was running low on faith and gasoline. It'd been a long, hard year. She had a lot on her mind and she didn't pay attention. She was going away too fast. Before she knew it, she was spinning on a thin black sheet of glass. She saw both her lives flash before her eyes. She didn't even have time to cry. She was so scared. She threw her hands up in the All right. Yeah, that's, I think, pretty much the uh, theology of what we're hearing in this sermon. Uh, this is the, um, if you want to build a better life, you need to let Jesus take the wheel. You need to surrender the driver's seat. About being beaten into su- submission. Like God's going to beat us into submission. So we just, until we just finally wave the, you know, the white flag. No, it's about saying, God, I know you love me. And because of that, I'm giving you my heart. And I'm not just giving you a piece of my heart or a part of my life. I'm not compartmentalizing my life. I'm actually. Uh, wait, wait, wait a second. You said surrender was a lifelong process. Remember, it's slow motion surrender. Yeah. So uh, you're saying you're giving everything to God, but you're doing it slowly over a process of a lifetime. This is ridiculous. Actually, taking the whole thing and saying, "Here it is. You know what's best for me. You love me." And if you can recognize that God loves you, then it's, it's easy for us to say yes to him. That's what surrender is, saying yes to God time and time again in our life. Uh, yeah, no, that's not the – this is uh, – that's Pelagianism. Sorry. Uh, no, if you're dead in trespasses and sins, you can't say, Jesus, take the wheel and surrender. No, that's, that's the Pelagian heresy. Yeah, look it up. Life. In the end, it becomes an offering of love, not something that's coerced, not something that's forced. Surrender is by an act of our will, and it's because of his will. Uh, no, it's not. That's Pelagianism. That's a heresy. We, we, no, 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 no. The, the scriptures make it clear that we don't choose God, he chooses us, and we don't become Christians by an act of our will, a human decision. Read the Gospel of John, chapter 1. No, 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 no. Yeah, this is pure Pelagianism at this point. Heresy. This is not biblical Christianity love his love draws us in it's the love of god that leads us to himself so i want to encourage you as we start this series we're going to look at a bunch of different things today really quickly it's kind of a shotgun approach and we're going to hit a few things but i have no idea what you need to surrender to god but let me tell you make no mistake about it every single person here including myself has something to surrender to god today and today let that let that start today let that begin you know and Thinking about uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, and uh, I think they made a book out of the movie. And um, that's the way I see things. 
And no, I actually, I, I actually read them as a child and um, read the whole series and, and loved it. Need to read them again. But you remember um, there was a, a point where, um, you know, uh, Jesus was depicted as a lion, a powerful lion named Aslan. And everybody's seen it, read the book, most of you. Know, and, and anyway, at one point, uh, someone asked about Aslan and they said, is he safe? You remember that? And the response back was, no, he's not safe, but he's good. And so that's why this, this, this surrender, it's not safe to surrender to God. You know, the weird thing. Um, Just uh, recently read the Chronicles of Narnia and just finished the last battle about two weeks ago. Um, Do you know that that? particular phrase he's not a tame lion he's not a safe lion um is the phrase that gets twisted into heresy in the great apostasy that took place in narnia prior to the end of narnia and uh, the return of aslan yeah i am not kidding i'm, I'm listening to this just going whoa yeah red flags flying everywhere this guy is ugh, he's he's even twisting the chronicles of narnia how dare you? Let's continue. God, but we surrender because he's good. We surrender because he has our best at heart. Let's bow and pray. God, I lift up every person here, and I just ask you, God, to show them your goodness. Help us to know that we can trust in you. And Father, we just ask that your Holy Spirit right now would just take a hold of our hearts, take a hold of our lives. Holy Spirit, we just want to open up our hearts, our minds to you today. For you to do something fresh, something new. God, your word says that those that hunger and thirst after you will be filled. God, we just pray that there's a, a hunger inside of our hearts that wants to surrender more of us to you. But help us to do it not because we're forced into it. You don't do that, God. Help us to do it, God, not, not because we, we feel like that's the right thing to do or something we ought to do or, or that's what the law says to do. No, God, we want to do it because we want to out of grace. Help every single person here, God, start to build a great life at the, at the process of surrendering more and more of ourselves to you. God, this isn't an easy thing to talk about today, but Lord, as we talk about surrender, just be there to comfort us, to encourage us, and ultimately to respond to you and to your, your love. And Lord, we know you're not safe, but you're good, and it's a dangerous surrender. But God, help us to trust you enough to surrender everything into your loving control. In Jesus' name, everybody said? All right, let's run through a bunch of things. The first thing is we need to surrender our lifestyle. This is a no-brainer. There's habits. There's stuff that we get caught up into. Uh, the Bible calls it sin. It just means lifestyle, uh, lifestyle. Check. Okay, the Bible calls it sin. Got to surrender sin. Check. Yeah, this is law, but okay, yeah. Into missing the mark, not measuring up. There's stuff in our lives that just needs, we need to surrender to God. We need to choose to yield bad habits and things that we know aren't God's best for our life. Why? Let me give you a few reasons. Yeah, please. The Bible says that those that come close to God are those that are, have clean hands and a pure heart. Every single one of us has a desire to be close to God. That's reason enough to let go of the stuff that's holding us back. Um, those of us who have clean hands and a clean heart, is that our righteousness, our sinless righteousness, or Christ's imputed righteousness? Remember, he had a sinless life, and his righteousness is given to us as if we're the ones who lived it. Philippians chapter 3, by the way, is what teaches, you know, clearly teaches this doctrine. If you have your Bible, flip over to Philippians chapter 3. We'll begin at, I think, verse 2. 
<clears throat> so we can read it in context. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for such confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised. On the eighth day, the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But <clears throat> whatever gain I had, I, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. It doesn't say it depends on surrender. It's the righteousness that depends on faith so that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by all means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not having a righteousness of my own. Whose righteousness does he have then? The righteousness of God, which is Christ's. Let's continue. Back. I'm not going to sit here and name all the stuff that's in the world. and this. We know what's good and we know what's not. Why don't you do the Ten Commandments? That would lay it out. And we know what God has ordained for us, and we know those things that are just weights and things that are holding us back. Look what it says in James 4, 17. Anyone who knows the right thing to do but does not do it is sinning. So we know there's a right way, and then we know there's a wrong way. And we've got to, we've got to say, I'm going to surrender to God's way. I'm going to get rid of this stuff out of my life. You know, the great prophet Bob Dylan said, you're going to serve somebody. You're going to serve somebody, right? And that's true. We're either going to serve uh, this world or we're going to serve the word. We're either going to serve uh, what what feels good. and What, what he's preaching is self-righteousness. What culture says is okay. Or we're going to live a counterculture life and follow Christ. And I want to encourage you today. Why else? What's another good reason? Not just to get close to God. That's enough. But you know what? When I, yeah, no, when I <clears throat> surrender. Notice he's saying that you can get close to God if you surrender. So your closeness to God depends upon well the sincerity and an effort of your surrender mm -hmm. yeah this is legalism under that stuff and my lifestyle to god i'm free from guilt that's huge what a benefit i'm free from that heaviness that comes along with guilt i found that i can't be guilty and happy at the same time maybe you can i can't i can't so you're free from guilt because you obey oh rather than being forgiven by christ shed blood on the cross yeah, yeah, no, you're, you are absolutely still under guilt then. Can't be guilty and happy at the same time. You ever seen a little kid that's guilty? Got his hand caught in the cookie jar? Look at that kid. He looks, I mean, he looks like he's an inch tall at that point. He's just, he's, he's, you know, he's, he's so down. That's what guilt does. It burdens us. It weighs us down. Why else? I want God's favor. I want his blessing in my life. It doesn't mean he doesn't love me any less, but let me tell you something. God favors people. And you might say, he plays favorites? No, he pours his favor out on people that are living for him and surrender to him. Man, that's a... Ah, so if you're obedient enough, God will favor you. Yeah, uh-huh. Law 
That's a great one. Here's another one. One day I'm going to actually have to stand before him and tell him what I did with what he gave me and how I live my life. Yeah, good luck, because if you want to be saved by the law, you have to have kept it perfectly. Good, Best of luck to you. I, I hope you make it. Man, that's a big one. Look at Romans 6.13. It says, don't surrender any part of yourself to sin to be used for wicked purposes. Instead, look at this. Give yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Look at this. Surrender your whole being to him to be used for righteous purposes. Wow, that's awesome. Uh, yeah, except for you forgot the gospel. Um, Romans 6 does have gospel in it and explains that to you. <clears throat> Romans 6, 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? Well, may, by no means. How can we who died to sin continue to live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Isn't that just great stuff? I mean, and the baptism there, it's all happening to us, done by the hand of Christ. Mm -hmm. So you yourselves also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. <sighs> See, it's all sanctification in light of the cross, in light of Christ's death and resurrection. Um, this, what he's preaching is, uh, well, the surrender. Sur yeah, surrender, you know. It's not handling God's word properly. Yeah, we're getting Bible BBs here. See, sin equals death. Living in the spirit and living for God equals life and peace, the Bible says. And if I walk in the spirit, then I won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. I can break those things and break through. And again, it's giving in to God's plan for my life, yielding to him. You know, you can't uh, build a great. Yeah, the text doesn't say that great life if you're tearing it down all the time yeah you can't live see you got to stop sinning so you can live a great life yeah with destructive habits again look at proverbs 28 13 people who cover over their sins they just won't prosper they won't succeed but if they confess and forsake them the bible says they'll receive mercy when we surrender to god his mercy comes uh, when we surrender to god his mercy comes Oh, man. This is the gospel contingent on law. This is a different gospel, folks. This is as bad, if not worse, than the Galatian heresy. Comes and, and, and takes care of stuff. Be honest with God. Ask for his help. His mercy's there. He'll help you build an incredible life. A surrendered life is a life. So mer God's mercy is him helping you live an incredible life. Oh, I get it. Not the forgiveness of sins. God's mercy is him helping you live an incredible life. Oh, that's so merciful. Life of purity. It's a life of favor. Here's the next one. Surrender your day. This past week, each morning, I've just purposed to get back into the discipline and the habit of seeking God first. And I'm going to be honest with you. You know, you know what I do for a living. It's no, uh, you know, no surprise to you. But you would think that I'd have just a great devotional life. I'm telling you, just like you, you have to fight for it. And, and I'm telling you, I struggle with it. 
you know, and, but this week, man, every- so have you surrendered enough, Scott? How do you know your your surrender was sincere enough if you're still struggling with it? I thought you had to give everything to God. You have to be pure, and every time you sin, you're not. Every single morning, and even the morning we watched the the USA game on Wednesday morning really early, um, got up beforehand and got in where I've been just kind of living in the Psalms, reading through the Psalms, because to me the Psalms are kind of like life is tough, but God is good. And I've just been kind of, I need that right now in my life. And I've just been drawing strength from the Lord gotten back into that habit of surrendering my day and it's made a massive massive difference it's something i desperately need and again going over the psalms I, I read this i think it was on tuesday psalms 34 9 look at this find out for yourself how good the lord is find out for yourself how good the lord is so another scripture says taste and taste and see how good god is how many of you guys like tic tacs does anybody like tic tacs how many of you guys like cherry passion tic tacs this is a new commercial. Cherry Passion Tic Tacs. There's two different colors in there, so I have no idea. It just says Cherry Passion. Artificially flavored. So anyway. But I could sit here and tell you how delicious these Tic Tacs are. I could pound one out. I've got one of each color. Those are delicious. Ew. They are. There's passion in those Tic Tacs. Cherry passion Tic Tacs. I could say, you have got to get yourself. Excuse me. Toking. Some cherry passion Tic Tacs. How many of you would really like to taste these? Go get your own. No, I'm just kidding. Felipe, they're all you. Oh, watch out. Okay, there we go. Just making sure you're alive. You're awake. I can sit there and describe... The flavors, the burst of flavor that's there. But you got to get it for yourself. We can talk about God in church, but you need to go and meet with him yourself. And you can do that. Some of you guys say, well, how? I don't know how to pray. I don't know where to, where to look. Hey, next Sunday, come early at 10 a.m. Go hang out with Shawnee and Garish. They teach a little bit about prayer. Prayer is simply just communicating with God, sharing your heart, letting it out. Find out for yourself how good the Lord is. So much better than cherry passion Tic Tacs. Look at James 4, 8. Draw close to God and God will uh, draw close to you. How do you do that? Through his word, through prayer, through praising and worshiping him. And that's not just something you do on Sunday and you meditate and you just say, God, I'm here to meet with you. And you start your day off right. You start your day off and This is all law. Surrender. Now look at the benefit of that. Look at this great scripture. Jesus in John 16, 33 Entrusting me, as we wake up and surrender our day, entrusting me, you will be unshakable and assured, deeply at peace. When I come and see God, when I wake up and I start to look up, guess what? I'm never going to give up. Because no matter what goes on in that day, I know God's with me. <laughs> when I look up, I'm never going to... Uh, I know, I've already met with God and he's shown me, I'm with you, Scott. I'm here for you. Everything you need, I've got. So no matter what trial or challenge I run up against, I know greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. I know that I'm going to make it through. Why? I've met with God. And he wanted to meet with me. And I drew near to him. And he drew near to me. And when I did that, there was an assurance and a boldness and a confidence and a courage. And faith was expanded in my life. And his spirit was breathing in me and through me. And guess what? It doesn't matter what I face now. I, nothing can take me down. I've met with God this morning. Bring it on, world. 
bring it on. And even if I start to get down, I'll go meet with him again. And I'll practice his presence throughout the day. You might say, I don't have time for that. You don't have time not to meet with God. Are you kidding me? Start your day. Surrender your day to God. A surrender. Uh, notice he said practice his presence. <clears throat> Roman Catholic mysticism. Surrendered life is a life deeply connected to God. Here's the next one. Surrender your decisions. Some of you right now, your next decision needs to be a really good one. For me right now and our church and where we're going and what I think God wants to do, the next few decisions need to be really good ones. And you know what that means? It means they can't come from me because I make some really bad decisions. Don't look at me so holy. So do you. We all blow. We all make some bad decisions. But let me tell you, when you meet with God, you surrender to him. You surrender your decisions. You say, God, you're not my co-pilot. You're the pilot. I'm in the passenger seat. I'm the co-pilot. You're flying this thing. You're directing my life. I need your wisdom. Here we go again. It was still getting colder when she made it to the shoulder and the car came to a stop. She cried when she saw that baby in the backseat sleeping like a rock. And for the first time in a long time, she bowed her head to pray She said, I'm sorry for the rain I've been living my life I know I've got to change So from now on tonight Jesus, take the Lord, right now in, in our lives, we need to live the scripture. And this was a scripture that is, it, it's, it's, it's a life verse, maybe my life verse. It was written down in the first Bible, the first real Bible my dad gave me, the first Bible without pictures, the first Bible that had a leather cover on it. He wrote this in the front. I still have that Bible to this day. And it's Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust God from the bottom of your heart. Don't try to figure out everything on your own. Everywhere you go, everything you do, seek him. Uh, he's the one. You listen for his voice. He's the one who will keep you on track. Don't assume you know it all. That goes into verse 7 there. And let me tell you something. This verse is a verse that I've put on more emails and more cards and more notes. I've quoted it more than any other verse in the Bible because it's a verse that I live. And it's this. I don't know what to do. And that's okay. But he does. And he'll show me what to do. If I surrender my decisions to him and don't power up in pride and say, I got this one covered, God, I'll make this decision. No, we got to surrender our decisions. That's a, it's a basis. It's a foundation of, of a great life. Jeremiah 33, three says, call to me. God speaking there. He says, call to me and I'll answer you. Look at this. I'll tell you marvelous and wondrous things that you could never figure out on your own. One translation says secrets. I'll let you in on secrets that there's no way else you can get this information. God is all powerful, all knowing. He's everywhere all the time. Trust me. So if you surrender enough, then God will let you in on some secrets. Woo, there's a motivation. That's a big carrot there. He knows what, what is the right decision for your life. 
And if you ask him, he'll tell you. One day my dad stayed home in 1978 and he started to call on God just like this. And God came and actually showed him a vision and he was a real estate developer at the time. Yeah, see, because he, uh, he was surrendered enough as a real estate developer that God gave him a vision and showed him secrets because he was uh, obediently surrendered enough. In 1978, making several hundred thousands of dollars a year in 1978. That's a lot of money then. That's a lot of money now. And he yielded himself to God and started to surrender. And he said, God, I don't know what the next step for my life is. And God showed him to his amazement immediately. I'm not saying you're going to get some vision like my dad did, but he got a vision. And you know what happened? It put in motion a plan for him to resign his position, resign his position as a vice president of of Wisconsin's largest real estate development firm. Just days before that, he had got a bonus and got about $150,000 worth of raw land just as a bonus on the year. That's, That's a nice bonus. And you know what he did? He turned it all down and he went to seminary. And what happened was that next decision for him was a God decision, even though it didn't make sense to anyone else. But he knew God had said, this is the way I want you to go. Call out to me and I'll show you what to do. And because of that, we moved down to Oklahoma. And because of that, I'm here today. My older brother's in Charlotte, North Carolina, pastoring. My younger brother's launching a brand new church in Kansas City. And it's not that pastors are greater than any other people in the world. But the reason we're doing what God wants us to do is because my dad made a God decision and surrendered his decisions to God. Let me tell you, that's the power of one God decision. Yeah, the glory all goes to your dad, too. Isn't that great? No glory to Christ. Your dad's the one who made the God decision. He surrendered all praise and glory to your earthly dad <sighs> in your life. And the same can be said for you and I about that bad decision that we sure wish we could take back and redo and take a mulligan on that one. But even if we do that, let me tell you something. God loves you, and God from this point forward wants to lead your decisions. Trust him from the bottom of your heart. Call out to him. Look at Isaiah 55. Why? Because God is just smarter than me. Scott, Einstein, listen up. God is smarter than you. Here's the thing is, is that this tapestry that he's weaving with all these Bible BBs out of context, the Bible doesn't ever teach it the way he's saying it. If he does, spend some time actually just, you know, starting at a verse from a from a good translation, maybe from a gospel, you know, Start reading, keep reading it in context, teach what it says in context, he'd do far better because at this point he's completely freewheeling. Like I told you at the beginning of the sermon, uh, we started off heading in the wrong direction. He went over the cliff and there's no way to recover this thing. It is a total train wreck. God is way smarter than you. Look at this. My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord. My ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. A life surrendered is a life in the center of God's will, making wise decisions, not going on detours, but staying on track. Here's the next one. Uh, Do you have any good news for the people who've sinned this past week, like you? Do you have any good news for those folks? Any good news? Any at all? Because, I mean, 
everyone's pretty much sitting there going, you know, I, I've screwed up this week and I haven't made, I've made some bad decisions. Got any good news for them? Oh, that's right. If they surrender, then God will give them mercy. Oh, that's right. And mercy isn't the forgiveness of sins. No, he'll give them a good life. <sighs> surrender your relationships. Now, I'd say we already know we surrender all of our life, but we also have to surrender who we do life with. I want to specifically look at, there's so many directions we can go here. I just want to specifically talk about having the right people in your life. It's very simple to, to, to see this. If you look at our lives as three different arrows and there's an upward arrow, you should have some people in your life that are smarter than you. I have those, mentors. No matter how old you are, you, sh- you, you could be 88 years old, you still need a mentor. It doesn't mean they're older than you. It just means for some reason they know more than you. That's fine. How many of you know that age does not bring maturity yeah. or wisdom? Yeah. Um, where is this in the Bible that if I'm 88 years old, I still need a mentor? Hmm. Just look around. You know what I'm saying? Am I sinning if I don't have a mentor? I mean, I you know, I've, men have mentored me over the years, but currently I can't. Well, maybe I don't. See, that's my problem. I, I guess I just I haven't surrendered enough to currently have a mentor. Uh, any of you uh, folks who are wiser than me out there who want – I need a mentor apparently. Um, send me an email, uh, a subject line, uh, mentor application. And, and give me your credentials as to why you should be mentoring me. Saying? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> what are you talking about, you little whippersnapper? But that arrow, I need people in my life that are mentors. So there's a few of those relationships. And we need to surrender to God and humble ourselves so we have those. Most of our relationships are an outward arrow where we're kind of with peers and amongst peers. And we need to watch those relationships. And then there's another arrow that points down because it's an arrow where you pull people up. Those are the relationships that we have with people that are far from God. I know you may have some peers, but let me tell you, if they don't have Christ in their life, that's a downward relationship for you. And trust me, Jesus was a friend of sinners. We need to have relationships and friends with people that aren't sitting here today. Absolutely. That maybe never will sit here today, but God has you in their life. But let me tell you something. You better make sure you know which way the arrow is going. Yeah. Because if you don't know which way the arrow is going, you could get lost. You better know that you're there to pull them up. Jesus was not becoming like them. Jesus was transforming them. So an arrow up. Who in? Well, yeah, at least he has some people in the peanut gallery going, oh, that was good. Amen, amen. Yeah, I, I can't say amen to any of this stuff. I, we are way, 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 way outside of what the Bible teaches at this point. In your life, do you have that can tell you no, that can tell you you need to watch it, that can watch out for you and give you great godly advice? Which peers do you have around you that are really helping, helping you? move towards God, and then where are those relationships where we're pulling people up and saying, God's got a plan for your life? I'm telling you, it's important. So we're supposed to tell people God has a plan for your life. I, here's great news. God might have a plan for your life. Uh, he does. He absolutely has a plan for your life. Uh, here's the bad news. His plan might involve you being eaten by lions. Yeah. Do you still want God? Look at Proverbs twelve twenty six. Godly people are careful about the friends they choose. The wrong friends will lead you down the wrong path. I got kicked out of college. I lost my scholarship. I was hanging around with friends. I was doing stuff I had no business doing. And it was amazing how slippery that slope was. 
They reinstated me, gave me my scholarship back. But at that point, I decided if I were to go back in that same environment, even though I had changed that summer, moved out here to California, took summer school, 16 credits at, at Fresno State, and, and did, did well, was doing the best I've ever done in school. And, and I knew if I went back to Tulsa, Oklahoma, I would go right back into that same sphere of influence and with the same friends because they were calling me pre-text, you know, pre-email. They were calling me on a regular phone, not even a cell phone. They were calling me, leaving messages. When are you coming back in town? When are you going to be here? Hey, we got to go over there. So-and-so's doing this. You know what I knew? I knew that if I went back there, I'd go right back to where I was. So God changed my heart. And one of the great decisions as I surrender my life to him is that I, I went to Bible college in Sweden and I got a whole new group of friends. In fact, for quite a while, I was kind of lonely. And God, seriously, Jesus was my friend. But then I made some other friends. And from that moment on, I realized how important friendships are, relationships are. And I had to surrender them to God. Proverbs twenty-seven seventeen: iron sharpens iron. One friend sharpens another. A surrendered life is a life connected to healthy, vibrant relationships. That's what we want in this church. We, we need that more than ever, a community, relationships where we're connected with each other. And I'm telling you, it's tough in Orange County. It's tough everywhere. It's tough in a mobile church environment, but we've got to fight for it. And we've got to make those right relationships. Here's the next one. Surrender your skills. Just turn to your neighbor and say, you've got some mad skills. Go ahead. You've got some mad skills. You're custom made by God. He's put things inside of you that no one else in this room has. And you're wired and the passions he's given you and the personal style, it's all unique to you. No one on this planet's like you. You've got skills, but we've got to surrender to those skills. You think you have those skills just so you can make a bunch of money? Or that you can try to pursue your dream that you maybe one day would make a lot of money in, but right now you're just trying to pay the rent? No, God didn't give you these skills and these abilities and these talents and these gifts just to make a paycheck, although that's great. Oh, man. Pack your bags. We're going on a guilt trip. Man, oh, man. I would rather be nagged to death by my wife. Come on. And she doesn't even nag. Oh, you think you got those skills? Yeah, I, I know. This is just... Uh... Yeah, I... And I think that'll happen as you do what naturally comes out of you. He gave you these skills to advance his kingdom. To change this world. To build the church. To do something that will last for eternity. Everything else is going to burn, but what we do for God and the investment that we make into other... You know, the emphasis is on the wrong syllable, as my mentor, Dr. Rod Rosenblatt, would say. Funny enough, as I'm listening to this sermon, it reminds me of today's... Um, uh, one of the readings from the Treasury of Daily Prayer today from uh, Bernard of Clairvaux. I, I hope I said that right. Bernard of Clairvaux. Yep, Clairvaux. Not clairvoyant, but Clairvaux. And the, this guy keeps talking about all the things we have to do. We have to do. We have. And then he, you know, he holds himself up as an example of the guy who's done it. But um, Bernard of Clairvaux, in today's reading from the Treasury of Daily Prayer, said, he says, there is no glory in having a gift without knowing it. But to know only that you have it without knowing 
that it is not of yourself that you have it, well, means self-glorying, but no true glory in God. And so the apostle says to men in such cases, what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you received it, why do you glory as if you had not received it? Like as if it's coming burbling up from yourself. Uh, that's 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, verse 7. So he asks, why do you glory? But goes on, quote, as if you had not received it, showing that the guilt is not in the glorying over a possession, but in glorying as though it had not been received. And rightly, such glorying is called vainglory, since it has not the solid foundation of the truth. The apostle shows how to discern, discern true glory from false when he says, he that glories, let him glory in the Lord, that is, in the truth, since our Lord is truth. So we must hate and shun that presumption which would lead us to glory in goods, not our own, knowing that they are not of ourselves, but they're from God, and yet not fearing to rob God of the honor due unto him. Ignorance is brutal, and arrogance is just devilish. Pride only, the chief of all iniquities, can make us treat gifts as if they were rightful attributes of our nature, and while receiving benefits, rob our benefactor of his due glory. That would be God. The Father of Christ, who makes all things new, is well pleased with the freshness of those flowers and fruits and the beauty of the field that breathes forth such heavenly fragrance. And he says in benediction, See the smell of my son is the smell as of a field that the Lord has blessed. Blessed to overflowing indeed, since of his fullness we have all received. Yeah, see, <clears throat> the way this guy is preaching, it's not that he's really truly received these things from God. He's made the right decisions. He's the one who's made the correct decision to make a difference in the world or whatever all the stuff he's talking about. And he's nagging us to, you know, to do these things, to do the same things that he's done. Yet, if we truly understand that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone, then we also understand that even the ability to do a good work is a gift from God. And we shouldn't glory in ourselves and give ourselves the glory. Oh, look what I've done. See, if you do this, then you too can... <sighs> I'm just... this. this uh, let's continue. I hope I'm making sense there. Others, we use our skills to bless others and to build others. Romans 12, 6, God has given each of you the ability to do certain things well. But it can't just be for you. He gave you gifts to, we already said, to expand the kingdom, to change the world, to build the church. Change the world. Hitler changed the world. Have I said that before? Let me just read you something that Mother Teresa said. She said, do you want my hands, Lord, to spend the day helping the sick and the poor who need them? Lord, today I give you my hands. Now, I, want to, I want you to keep in mind, Mother Teresa, okay, I do not despise or impugn the good works that she did. Okay, she was truly a person who strove uh, and put into action uh, her beliefs. Now, as a Roman Catholic, though, um, she didn't believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone. Um, she was striving to, well, in a sense, save herself. What does that tell you? 
Do you want my feet, Lord, to spend the day visiting those who need a friend? Lord, today I give you my feet. Do you want my voice, Lord, to spend the day speaking to all who need your words of love? Lord, today I give you my voice. Do you want my heart, Lord, to spend the day loving everyone without exception? Lord, today I give you my heart. Today I give you. Today I give you. What are you talking about? God gave you your heart. God gave you your hands. God gave you your feet. God gave you your mouth. You don't give them to God. He's the one who gave them to you. You see what I'm saying here? That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about saying, God, everything that you've given me, I want to give back and surrender back to you to be used to make a difference in this world. Because he's given you the ability to do certain things well. Look at Ephesians 2.10. It is God himself who made us what we are and given us new lives from Christ Jesus. So long, and long ago he planned that we should spend these lives helping others. It's about other people and showing them God's love and using our gifts and our skills to build them up. First Peter 4.10. You mean tear them down. Using the gifts that God has given us to tear down self-righteousness, to tear down false belief, to call sinners to repentance and the forgiveness of sins, and to use the gifts that God has given them. In fact, their very life. Well, since really we've been redeemed, we've been purchased, we don't give anything to God. God doesn't need anything. God has given us and given us to do. And all of that flows through the cross. But I'm not hearing the cross at all in this sermon. This is not gift that he's talking about. This is about somehow you trying to get ahead of God and, you, well, you, you you giving to God. Well, he gave you, so you're going to give back. It sounds so pious, but again, none of this is anchored to the cross. And the way this guy preaches, I mean, he's really the one getting the glory because look at the great decisions that he's done. Look at the things he's given back to God. And God has given each of you special abilities look at this be sure to use them to help each other be sure to use them to help each other there's a parable jesus taught the parable of the talents in the bible you should read it to one he gave five talents to one he gave two and to one he gave one many of you are nodding because you know this story maybe you don't the one that he gave five to and then he went on a long journey he said multiply them use them use what i've given you and the guy that had five went out and he made five more and he ended up with 10. Um, oh man, see, this is, it, it sounds like he's giving us a biblical text here. He's not. Um, need to pull up uh, this passage and uh, talent is what I'm looking for. Hang on a second here, adding a little context. Okay, Matthew 25. Uh-huh. Uh, all right, so here we go. Uh, Matthew 25. If you have your Bibles, open up to Matthew 25. And what I'm going to do here, let's see. All right. All right. Let's see here. Um, all right. So the kingdom of heaven, uh, for it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. <clears throat> and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, another one, to each according to his ability, and then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five more talents. 
Uh, so also the one who had two talents made two more. But he who received the one talent went and dug it in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled the accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me the five talents. Here I've made five more talents. The master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. And also the one who had two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me the two. I've made two more talents for you. Whose property is it again? God's. It's God's property. And he didn't give them any commands. They just went and did business with his property. And his property did what his property does. It multiplies. <sighs> yes, again, the emphasis is on the wrong syllable. This sounds pious. This sounds biblical. This sounds all of the above. But the problem is, is that it's really about the thing you have to do rather than understanding it's all a gift from God. And when the master came back, he said, well done, good and faithful. You took what I gave you and you multiplied it. You used those skills, those gifts, those talents. Enter into the joy of the Lord. And he actually gave him more authority and gave him more responsibility. The guy that had two wasn't the same as the guy that had five, but he was a two-talent person. But he took those two talents and guess what? Bam, he got two more. And the master came back and gave him the same blessing. But then one who had one out of fear, dug a hole in the ground and, and buried his skill, his talent, his ability in the ground, covered it up. And then when the master came back, it was, whoa, 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 buried his skill, his talent, his ability. And see what he's, this is, uh, this is a problem for all you English speakers out there. When it says talent, don't think skill ability. No, 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 no. Talent is, uh, it's a particular denomination of money. If you would, it's a particular weight of gold or silver. It it's the property of the master. It's not a skill or ability because it says in the parable, each according to his ability. So a talent isn't an ability. It isn't a skill. The talent is the property of the master given into the hands of the servants. Hey, just a minute. Pulled out a shovel, dug it off, dusted it off, dug it up, dusted it off, gave it to him. And to his surprise... He didn't hear the same thing, well done, good and faithful servant. You know what he heard? You're a wicked and lazy servant. Depart from me. He was actually cast into outer darkness. I'm not sure what that is. I just don't want to go there. But here's the principle. Use what you have to help others. Be sure to use what you've got to help others. Use those skills and those abilities. Not just Because if you don't, you're going to be cast into outer darkness. What's missing here? Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone. This is a cosmic quid pro quo he's preaching. You do this, then God will do that. You don't want to be cast into outer darkness, then you better start getting busy serving others with the talents and abilities that God has given you. Because if you don't, outer darkness. For a paycheck, not just so others go, wow, you're so gifted. Use them to actually make a difference in this world something that will last for eternity. The surrendered life is a life of meaningful service and fulfillment. Last couple real quick, surrender your resources. Yes, I'm a pastor and yes, I'm talking about money. And we don't do that a lot here, but I wanna tell you something. I want that to change, not because I wanna pressure you. Hey, I grew up in a church where it wasn't an offering, it was a shakedown. So I don't like that. We put a bucket in the back. We're always gonna do that. It's free will, it's between you and God. But I, wanna, I, wanna, I want you to understand the significance of surrendering all of you, including your resources to God. 
When we surrender to God, it's not just our hearts, but our hearts also show us where your heart is, your treasure will be. And you surrender that to God. Yield everything to him. Everything you currently have and anything that you'll get in the future, you yield him. Look at Proverbs 3, 9 and 10. It says, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the best part of everything you produce. Then he will fill your barns with grain and your vats will overflow with good wine. Several times in the Bible, God's people were kind of holding back really what belonged to God. They were holding back and going, I'm just going to live for me. You're either going to live for the kingdom of God or you're going to live for the kingdom of me. And the reason I don't want to live for the kingdom of me is because me can't save me. Me can't heal me. Me can't deliver me. Well, funny enough, the way you're preaching, uh, you are delivering yourself. Because if you don't want to be cast into outer darkness, then you better get busy serving other people. So who's doing the saving here? And, and, and I'm kind of sick of me. If I live for the kingdom of God, I say everything I have, it's part of your kingdom. But you've given it to me not as an owner, but as a manager. And I'm going to manage your stuff in your kingdom. I'm not going to pull it all over into the kingdom of me, myself, and I, this unholy kingdom. I'm going to live for you, God. And it's, it's an issue of honor. And several times in the Bible, God, through prophets, rebuked his people and said, you're, you're holding back. You're giving me leftovers. <laughs> and he just rocked them. And he, one, at one point, he said, you're robbing God. It's God's stuff, and you're stealing from God. Man, I, I could think of a whole lot of people I'd rather steal from first before God. I don't want to steal from anybody, but my goodness. And they just got, they kind of got the deal, you know. And I understand we're in the New Testament. We're under a new covenant. But let me tell you, if anything, God, the bar has been raised. The standards and the level of giving and generosity, now through a transformed heart and one close to God, how much more should I release and not live in the kingdom of me, but live in the kingdom of God. Look at this other scripture. Give generously. Deuteronomy 15.10. Give generously and do. So here's the key. Without a grudging heart. Okay, God, here's five bucks. No. Then because of this, giving with the right heart. Because of this, the Lord your God, look at this, will bless you in all of your work. Um, if you're giving in order to get a blessing, you're not giving with a right heart. Again, let me repeat that. If you are giving in order to get a blessing from God, hmm, I get a blessing from God here. Hmm. This is this might work out well. I mean, I've always wanted that new boat. So, yeah. Okay, so I'm going to give to God. And, hey, God, where's the blessing? I gave to you. See, that's not giving with the right heart. By the way, it takes Jesus replacing our heart of stone with a heart of flesh for us to be able to even to give with a right heart, because the only thing our hearts produce is wickedness. So in order to do it with a right heart, that has to there has to be a heart transplant. But he's not preaching regeneration and sanctification through the cross and the new nature and all of that. No, no. If you do this, then God will do that. If you do this with the right heart, then God will bless you. You see, the thing is, is that that's the key. If you have a right heart, you're not doing it for a blessing. It's because you're doing that according to your new nature in Christ. You've been buried with Christ. You've been raised with Christ. It's not done so that you can get something. It's done in light of the new nature and done in gratitude in light of the cross. 
and in everything you put your hand to. This is why I really think the early church was so vibrant and so blessed, even under persecution. They had a spirit of generosity. They had a spirit of community. At one point, they just piled everything in the middle. They go, let's just put it all in for God. Well, actually, they they took care of the needs of others, not out of compulsion, but that was the fruit of of their regenerated life in Christ, the fruit of repentance and the forgiveness of sins, the fruit of being given the gift of faith and no longer being dead in trespasses and sins, but being alive through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Dude, you're basically telling people that they've got to do this on their own when all of it is gift if you understand the gospel. And, and that was awesome. And I'm not saying that needs to happen, but I'm telling you, we need to have that spirit to be able to say, I want to be generous. God, I want to give you everything you have. Belong- Good luck, because what's going to happen when the next time you don't have that spirit? Oh, man, do I try harder? This is a formula for absolute despair or pharisaical self-righteousness. Belongs to God. It's not yours. You know, Mary and I live in a house and we pay a mortgage. It's not my house. It's, it's the Lord's. Everything this earth is the Lord's. He, he let me. Yeah, because he's got the right attitude. Borrow the shirt. TJ Maxx special. But I, there it is. And you know what? But everything in my life, everything, my, my, my relationship with my. I don't believe him. No, everything in your life, you have not yielded to God or surrendered to God. There is no way in Hades. You are still struggling with your sinful nature until Christ returns and resurrects you from the grave. So, no, you haven't yielded everything. You haven't surrendered everything. Not even close. If that were true, then you wouldn't be sinning every day like you do. My wife, everything that I do, my kids, they belong to God. It's all his. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. I'm a manager. And I'll tell you what, I'm going to surrender my life and surrender what it looks like with resources is the first part of my income goes to him cheerfully, not out of obligation, not out of law, out of grace. Uh, could you explain the grace part to us, please? Out of that it's easy to do. It's the first and the best. It's not leftovers. It's not holding back. It's not kingdom of me. I'm surrendering my resources. Let me just quickly share my vision. How can it be grace if you're the one doing the surrendering? You're doing the work. Ah, I'm going to lose my mind here. The vision of this church, the vision that God gave us, and, 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 and a vision that is dear to my heart. We're a community of followers of Jesus Christ. God has called us to come together. And the first thing is that we're committed to live by faith. We're united in love. And we're dedicated to bring a message of hope to Orange County and beyond. And you look at that, and God wants to build a community of faith, love. And- uh, what's the, again, what's the big message of hope that God wants you to help you, help you build a great life? And hope here in our lives and in this place. That's why I think looking at the series, Building a Great Life, I'm, I'm selfishly hoping that as you build a great life, together we'll build a great church. And I'm not embarrassed about saying that. I want, I want to see God build something great here. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I think God... Who's going to build it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. God wants this church to rise up to be a great church. What does that look like, Pastor? What, how big does that... That has nothing to do with it. It's about being a healthy body, no matter how big or small we we are or we get. It's about making a difference in this world. 
Gideon make, got stripped. Yeah, it's about making, again, here we go again, making a difference in the world. Hitler made a difference, big difference. So did Stalin, so did Mussolini. Stripped down to just a few, but they won the battle. And I tell you, sometimes, sometimes you feel a little bit like that. You feel like, God, you know, these people have moved and those people are gone. And where are those students now? But I tell you what, I'm convinced that God is building, building up this church and building up this vision. And I tell you, building up this vision. Hmm. He's one of those vision casting guys. It takes resources. It takes someone to say, I'm going to invest in this. It takes someone to say, I'm going to, I'm going to take part in this vision. This isn't Scott's vision. This is our vision. And this is something that we can invest in. And you know what? It's a place not to just uh, to, to just do ministry. It's a pa- place to build people. Yeah. It's a place to love people. It's a place to invest in people. That's what we're about. That's what this community is, a community of faith, trusting in God, united in love. Together, we're going to do this. And it's, it's a community of, of, of bringing that message of hope to people that are far from God. A friend called me this again. What message of hope? Hope for what? A rat wheel of works so that maybe you can not be cast into outer darkness. This weekend gave me the scripture over the phone. Second Samuel 17. I want to share it with you. It says this. Yeah. Notice the entire sermon. Every single passage has been just ripped out of context. This is not a coherent biblical teaching. This is a tapestry of self-righteousness. I will appoint a place for my people and will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. And I tell you, it hit me like a ton of bricks. And that might not mean a lot to you, but I started to think about, we're a mobile church. We have a 22-foot truck out back. Clinton rolls up faithfully week after week. Faithful people unload it. We set everything up. We load it back up. Not today, though. We leave everything out for a month so we get a break because they're they're off of school. That's awesome. I said, that's awesome. Thank you. It really is. More than you know. It's really cool. Um, But my friend called me not knowing. I've been out looking at buildings because property and commercial property is just people are desperate out there. There are owners that have one guy has 11 empty buildings and he's flipping. He's paying the mortgage on every single one of those. And he's just ready to do something different. So I just feel like let's get out there and look. And as I have, man, faith has been building in my heart. And I saw some buildings, and let me tell you, it would take a miracle, but we serve a God of miracles. But I'm just telling you this to let you know, I'm kind of serving, you notice, we're going to get a building. And I can't tell you exactly when, but we're going to get a building, and I tell you, it's going to help bring more community. The reason for the building is not so we can say we have a building. The church is not a building. The church is the people. But But what we need to be able to do is focus on people, not on tasks. Uh, could you focus us on Christ, please, and what he's done, please? I- I'm getting tired of hearing about you. Are you guys understanding this? And so I just want to encourage you. And the good news is we're getting the building. The bad news is you're paying for it. <laughs> Here's the last thing today. Surrender your dreams. I'm just messing with Surrender your dreams. I'm going to surrender my dream within a dream. But I'm fired up about a building. Move this up here. (laughs) Got to pound some. I'm fired up about creating more space for for lives to change. I'm fired.
about preaching the gospel, Christ and him crucified, repentance, forgiveness of sins. You're excited about having a building so more lives can change. You know, Alcoholics Anonymous does a fine job of changing people's lives. Yeah, all those addiction 12-step programs, lives are absolutely changed. And they even believe in a, quote, higher power. Isn't that so godly and spiritual? Yeah. Fired up about you being here. You're the church. It's not, I know it's not about a building, but it's about being able to focus on not the constant. Man, almost all those Tic Tacs are gone. That's awesome. Did they make it around or did someone eat all of those? Are those yours? Do you still have yours? You passed them around? Spirit of generosity? He's living the message, people. Felipe is living the message. What was that one? Surrender your, surrender your Tic Tacs. Surrender your resources. That's awesome. Here's the final one. Surrender your dreams. All of us have a dream. And again, it can't be in the kingdom of me. Your dream is too small for your life. You need God's dream for your life. And where exactly are all these biblical passages that discuss God's big dream for my life? Because mine's too small. My dream for my life is too small. I need a God-sized dream from something there's no way I could ever fulfill on my own. We need- yeah, see, you don't want to settle for those human-sized dreams. You need God-sized. Where, again, where are all the biblical passages that give us these God-sized dreams? The promise, us, you and me, that we can have God-sized dreams too, that God's just sitting up there just waiting for us to surrender. You know, wave the white flag, go, I surrender. Can I have my God-sized dream now, please? Please, please, please. Uh, I would like mine with a, a, a with like a, a, in a traditional cone, and I would like three scoops. One of them, uh, I need to have that to be that co- chocolate chip cookie dough, and then another one... Just plain old vanilla and then strawberry, too. That, yeah, I've surrendered. Can I have my God-sized dream now, please? Being a building that's a God-sized building, not just something we could go try to get on our own. I'm telling you, you have a dream, and you need to surrender that to God because Jesus said, follow me. And, and he did. He said, I'll make you. I have an incredible plan for your life. Follow me. But look at this guy in Luke 9. Uh, where does Jesus say, I have an incredible light, a plan for your life? Follow me. I, I need a chapter and verse on that one, Pastor. Yeah. Nine, Jesus had an encounter with this guy, and Jesus invited him, which was very rare, to follow him because he already called 12 disciples. Most people that wanted to follow me said, no, go back home and minister and talk to your family. Sometimes he even said, go back home and don't tell anybody what happened. Of course, they'd go back home and tell everything that happened. But he said, follow me. Look at this guy's response. Another said, yes, Lord, I will follow you. Yes, Lord, I will follow you. But let me first say goodbye to my family. Look at the contradiction here. Yes, Lord. See that? Yes, Lord. Then look at the other two words. Me first. Yes, Lord. Me first. And we do this. Just like this guy. We say, yes, Lord. I'll follow, but me first. I've got other stuff I need to deal with first. No, when God asks us to follow, and when we're going to follow his dream, it's a now thing. It's I'm going to follow you, God, starting right now. My next step is your way, not my way. The next step is into your kingdom. Uh, My question, just uh, the burning question in my mind at the moment is, how exactly does the cross 
factor into this theology. Yeah, I'm, I'm confused there. Not my little kingdom, not the kingdom of me. Ephesians 3.20 says, by his mighty power, by God's mighty power at work within us, God is able to accomplish infinitely more than we would ever dare to ask or hope. His dream is infinitely bigger, infinitely more than my dream. Have the band come back up, please. As we close in prayer here, just look at this final verse. Words of Jesus in Mark 8. Only those who throw away their lives for my sake and the sake of the good news will know what it means to really live. The starting point of building a great life, it starts with surrender. There's no other way around it. I wish things were different. I wish it, it, it didn't. Yeah, I thought it started with the preaching of the gospel, forgiveness, repentance, regeneration. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it doesn't start with surrender because otherwise it depends upon my human powers to be able to pull it off. But if I'm dead in trespasses and sin, I don't have the power to surrender. I'm dead in trespasses and sins. Jesus makes it clear. Salvation and the new birth don't depend upon a human decision. Read the first chapter of the Gospel of John. Read John chapter 6. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Children not born of natural descent or of a human decision, but born of God. This guy's preaching something different. Uh, it all begins with surrender, so it's your decision. You better surrender, because if you don't, well, yeah, yeah. Again, where's the cross here? It seems to be missing. It didn't have to be that kind of all or nothing. Many times I, I wish I could build my little kingdom, and that's what I want to do because that's what feels good and feels right. But let me tell you, following Christ, building a great life, it starts with surrender. Uh, if you're the one surrendering um, and you're the one building your great life by surrendering, then actually you are building your kingdom, not God's kingdom. Just want to make that clear. And it's not just a piece of us, a part of us. It's that we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Uh, law and no, you don't. Because if you did love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you wouldn't be sinning every day. Stand today. Oh, he's going to pray. We're done. Yeah, um, that was uh, a fine example of absolute pure self-righteousness, salvation via sanctification, salvation via surrender. Good luck. You won't make it. In fact, this is the Galatian heresy. This is Pelagian heresy. This is just heresy. This is not the gospel. And this is exactly what Jesus warns of when he says, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. This was the yeastiest pharisaical sermon I've heard in a while. And all the glory goes to the guy who did the surrendering. Oh, isn't that great? Oh, look at him. See all these blessings he's getting in his life? It's because he's surrendered more than you have. And if you surrender as much as he does, then you'll be as blessed as he is. See? <sighs> Absolute frustration. This is a formula for complete and utter despair or pharisaical self-righteousness. All right. We're approaching the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. 
When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. You can email me. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>